reached epidemic proportions in America. I'm Dr. Paul Christo. This is Aches and Gains. Dr. Paul Christo is one of America's leading experts on relieving pain. He's board-certified, Harvard-trained, and a pain medicine specialist at Johns Hopkins. U.S. News and World Report ranks him as a top doctor and among the top 1% in the nation for pain management. Becker's Review selected him as one of the 70 best pain management physicians in America. He's listed as a super doctor for the Washington, D.C., Baltimore, Northern Virginia area. Aches and Gains is a weekly talk show covering all aspects of pain and pain relief. The human impact is real. Older adults, children, and even infants struggle to cope with pain. But there's hope, and there are treatments that can ease pain and suffering. The show offers compelling stories about people who've found relief. We share cutting-edge treatments from contributing experts, and we offer ways to help people cope with their pain. In the minds of many, the diagnosis of metastatic breast cancer is often equated with suffering, pain, and death. Today, though, the five-year survival rate for all types of cancer has improved to 65%. A lot more patients have significant extensions of their lives, as well as a higher quality of their remaining lives. This is certainly true for metastatic breast cancer. Although it's unlikely to be cured, there are meaningful improvements in survival thanks to newer and more effective therapies. In fact, the median overall survival is now slightly over three years and ranges from a few months to many years. On today's show, we'll have the opportunity to hear from Dr. Sarah Hurwitz. She's a specialist in oncology and hematology. Dr. Herbert serves as the Director of Breast Oncology at the Johnson Comprehensive Cancer Center at the University of California, Los Angeles. She'll explain the three main biologic subgroups of breast cancer, and specifically metastatic breast cancer. Each subgroup offers certain treatment choices, advantages, and side effects. Thanks to the explosive growth of precision medicine, these therapies prolong life, and even newer drugs with better outcomes are on the horizon. Aches and Gains is supported by Horizon Therapeutics, Daiichi Sankyo, Boston Scientific, and the Alliance for Benzodiazepine Best Practices. Dr. Sarah Herbitz is a professor of medicine at the University of California, Los Angeles. She specializes in treating women with breast cancer and leads multiple clinical trials testing new targeted therapies. Dr. Herbitz, welcome to Aches and Gains. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. By definition, metastatic breast cancer is classified as stage 4. What does stage 4 actually mean? Breast cancer that has left the breast and the nearby lymph nodes and has set up a home in a different part of the body, for example, the liver, the bones, the lungs, um, is, is by definition stage four metastatic breast cancer. Mm-hmm. When they're diagnosed with an early stage small tumor in the breast, by the time it's actually picked up on imaging or they can feel it in their breast, those breast cancer cells have been growing for years in most cases. And during that time, those cells have access to break through into blood vessels within the breast and escape going elsewhere in the body. Um, Sometimes that's detected at the time of the original diagnosis, but most commonly that event is actually detected many years later after the patient's undergone surgery and therapy for that early stage disease. Okay. And when a, a mass is picked up, for example, on a scan or a patient has pain in the bones, 
if we are able to see a problem, a tumor on imaging, and we biopsy it, it will be breast cancer cells in the liver, uh, breast cancer uh, cells in the bone, and that's what we term metastatic or stage four breast cancer. It's not liver cancer or bone cancer, it's metastatic breast cancer, breast cancer that has spread. Right. Could you also tell us about the other stages of breast cancer? There are five stages of breast cancer Mm -hmm. because we start with stage zero where the breast cancer is a precancerous state. It doesn't have access to blood vessels or lymphatics, and we call that ductal carcinoma in situ or precancer. Stage 1, 2, and 3 are based on the size of the tumor and whether or not any of the lymph nodes, typically in the armpit or axillary region, are involved. Stage 1 is lymph node negative, smaller tumors. Stage 2, slightly larger tumors and maybe a few lymph nodes involved. And stage 3, a little bit more advanced, but not yet metastatic. Okay. And are any of those stages painful? Pain is typically not associated with early stage breast cancer, but never say never. Sometimes patients will come in and say, you know, I have a painful left breast lump, and indeed we find out it's cancer. So, you know, women need to be aware of uh, anything and report it to their doctors if if they note a change. Mm -hmm. Um, In terms of stage four metastatic breast cancer, tumors involving bones or liver or other places in the body can be associated with pain. What is it about breast cancer that causes pain? A tumor, for example, in the lung that's that's near the edge of the lung where the pleura or the lung covering is, has lots of nerve endings, so pain can be associated with that. So it's, it's really, it's a space-occupying tumor that exerts pressure, and that is generally what causes pain. There's also some factors secreted by cancers called cytokines that can also cause pain syndromes associated with cancer. On the other hand, though, doesn't breast cancer typically present with a painless lump discovered accidentally or or by self-exam? Yes, absolutely. Typically, it's a painless lump or a a painless uh, and completely no symptoms associated with it just picked up on mammogram. Now, with respect to metastatic breast cancer, unfortunately, it eludes cure but we've seen meaningful improvements in survival. How much of the survival benefit is due to better diagnostic methods like mammography? Well, there are a lot of studies looking at how much screening mammography and screening testing has improved overall survival. And I think when you look at the compilation of data, screening mammography has likely improved long-term survival for patients. If we're able to pick up the disease in a curable stage one, two, or three, or stage zero through three uh, stage, we have a greater likelihood that patients will live longer. The screening mammographies really work best for women who have fatty breast tissue, which is better visualized by MAMO, Mm -hmm. and that is most common in women who have already gone through menopause or who are over the age of 50. So there are limitations to screening. At the same time, though, it seems like fewer women today reach the stage of metastatic breast cancer because of the advent of screening mammography. About what percent of those with breast cancer 
end up getting metastatic breast cancer. With their initial diagnosis of breast cancer, they are diagnosed with stage 4 disease. It's less than 10% of patients in the United States. Okay. Then looking at patients with stage 1, 2, or 3 breast cancer, the higher the stage, the higher the likelihood a patient will develop metastatic disease. Mm -hmm. We know that the subtype of breast cancer also really impacts a woman's likelihood of having the cancer return later as metastatic. Let's talk about the common or the three common subtypes of breast cancer, hormone receptor positive, HER2, also called human epidermal growth factor receptor 2, and triple negative. Are the proteins that are produced in higher quantities by these tumor cells, such as HER2, used as biomarkers of disease activity? Yes, the biomarkers are the most important feature of the tumors, I would say, um, in terms of determining how the disease is going to behave, what the prognosis is, and what therapies are most likely to work. The three biomarkers that we use once a woman is diagnosed with invasive breast cancer are the two hormone receptors, estrogen receptor and progesterone receptor, Mm -hmm. and this other protein that you mentioned, HER2. Um, This is a protein that is overexpressed in anywhere from 15 to 20, 25% of patients with breast cancer on the cancer cells. Um, And patients with HER2-positive breast cancer have a more aggressive disease biology but benefit significantly for therapy that targets that. And talk to us about triple-negative breast cancer. Triple-negative breast cancer, which is really a classification based on what the tumor is not rather than what it is. (laughs) but it is lacking estrogen receptor, progesterone receptor, and the HER2 receptor. Is survival for metastatic breast cancer better for certain subtypes? I mean, I'm thinking about a large French study that was done from 2008 to 2017 that studied something like over 20,000 women. What they showed is that for patients diagnosed with HER2-positive metastatic breast cancer, the median overall survival is significantly rising. It was about 39 months. Uh in 2008 and is up to around 58 months at the most recent look, which was around 2013 or 2014. Wow. Um, And this is most likely due to the drastic improvements in the way that we can treat that disease. Um, In terms of survival for triple negative or hormone receptor positive breast cancer, we're not seeing those numbers change very much over time. Um, Our hope is that we will see those numbers change soon. I hope so. Is survival different for certain ethnic or racial groups? Biologically, black women, uh, Latina women uh, have a higher chance of being diagnosed with the most aggressive subtype, which is triple negative breast cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there are issues such as access to health care, um, early diagnosis and detection that are involved in changing outcomes for women based on their ethnicity or race. Right. The socioeconomic factors. Dr. Herbitz, is there any risk for metastatic breast cancer in men? About 1% of breast cancer diagnosed in the United States annually is actually diagnosed in men. In my own practice, have 
around a dozen male breast cancer patients. Mm-hmm. And it's typically diagnosed at a little later stage, yeah. um, probably owing to the fact that we're not screening and men aren't, you know, really having awareness about their breast tissue. And so they, they get diagnosed a bit later. Right. That makes complete sense. How is metastatic breast cancer typically detected? We don't put patients who are feeling well and doing well uh, into scanners looking for metastatic disease because that has not been shown to improve a woman's chance of surviving. Okay. And we don't do blood tests looking for metastatic breast cancer in a healthy, good-feeling patient um, because the blood tests, the tumor markers that we do have, they'll miss somewhere around 25% of metastatic disease. Oh. So it's really just typically routine healthcare maintenance and follow-up with the patient. With respect to pain, is that one of the first symptoms of metastatic breast cancer? Pain in the bone is probably one of the top symptoms. Uh, bone metastases are very common with metastatic breast cancer, especially hormone receptor positive. Mm-hmm. If a patient's liver enzymes, which are just checked as part of their routine healthcare maintenance, change, or if they develop um, right upper quadrant pain or trouble breathing, these are things I'm certainly going to be aware of. Headaches and vision change, dizziness, or other things, because triple negative and HER2 positive breast cancers have a higher risk of going to the brain. Very good information. We're up for a break. When we return, we'll ask Dr. Herbitz about the details related to the breast biopsy and what it shows. I'm Dr. Paul Christo, and you're listening to Aches and Gains. Aches and Gains is supported by Horizon Therapeutics, who believes that science and compassion must work together to transform lives for people living with rare and rheumatic diseases. Discover more about Horizon's mission at horizontherapeutics.com. For cutting-edge treatments and resources, follow Dr. Paul Christo on Twitter at Dr. Paul Christo and like Aches and Gains with Dr. Paul Christo on Facebook. Welcome back. Dr. Sarah Herbitz is a hematologist-oncologist, and she's a professor of medicine at the University of California, Los Angeles. Dr. Herbitz, once metastatic breast cancer is detected, a biopsy of the breast cancer occurs. Now, at that point, Do the biomarkers found on the tumor cell surfaces subdivide them into types? Correct. Now that we are doing the biomarkers and looking at ER and PR and HER2, this gives us not only prognostic information, but it also tells us what therapies are most likely to work. And that's why it's so important to test the biopsy material for those three things. Well, you know, in fact, we've talked about three common subtypes, hormone receptor positive, HER2, and triple negative. Now, there's a HER3 receptor as well. Would you talk to us about that receptor? HER3, it, it is similar to HER2, and it actually, on the cell surface, uh, interacts with HER2 to cause a chain reaction to occur within the cancer cell, making the cancer cell divide and grow. Mm-hmm. Um, some research has gone into looking at the expression levels of HER3 across different cancers, not just breast cancers. Okay. And some studies have indicated that when there is too much of this HER3 on the cell surface, that the cancer is associated with a worse prognosis. Okay. It doesn't appear to be a driver of disease biology in breast cancer, mm-hmm. unlike HER2. However, there are drugs that are being developed that are like Trojan horses. There are antibodies that carry chemo on their back that go in and, and bind to HER3 and then are brought up into the 
cancer cell and the chemotherapy is released, allowing the cancer cell to die. Okay. It's not something that we're checking on tumor cells right now for patients diagnosed with breast cancer, but it's an investigational thing. Well, more to come, and it's very exciting, especially the antibody drug conjugates, the, the Trojan horse type of drug that you mentioned, which we'll talk about soon. Let's now discuss hormone receptor positive breast cancer and some of the therapies that are available for it. And let's start with tamoxifen. Tamoxifen is an estrogen receptor modulator, so it blocks the action of estrogen on cancer cells that have estrogen receptors. Mm -hmm. Um, It also can act on normal tissues that have estrogen receptors, and that can lead to some different side effects. More recently, in the 90s, a class of drugs called aromatase inhibitors, which are also pills, were developed, um, anastrozole, letrozole, eximestane, and shown to be a bit more effective than tamoxifen, but they only work in women who don't have functioning ovaries, so either women who are in menopause or who are on drugs to block their ovarian function. Um, and so that's, that's another class. And then more recently than that, a drug called fulvestrant, which is an injection um, given monthly, was developed, and this is like a super tamoxifen. It blocks the estrogen receptor completely, and it leads to um, the cancer cell having difficulty in producing the estrogen receptor. So we call that estrogen receptor downregulation. Okay. And that's probably the most effective one. However, it's only available for metastatic breast cancer. There are now a number of companies who are developing oral formulations of this type of medication called SERDs, S-E-R-D, or estrogen receptor down regulators. So we're going to see a lot of data coming out in the next few years relating to uh, these different drugs that are blocking estrogen receptor. Quite a number of therapies then for homoreceptor positive breast cancer. Dr. Hurwitz, talk to us now about how effective these therapies are in terms of survival benefit for metastatic breast cancer. These are very effective, but they're not curative. When a woman has metastatic disease, she has a chronic incurable illness, um, she or he, that needs to be treated lifelong. Mm -hmm. And if it's hormone receptor positive, we start with hormonally based therapy. Um, A typical woman, if she is given one of these drugs after just being diagnosed with metastatic ER positive breast cancer, will have the disease controlled for 9 to 12 months. Okay. Um, in the last five or six years, however, um, we've seen the development of a class of agents called cyclin-dependent kinase 4-6 inhibitors. When you add one of these drugs to an anti-estrogen therapy, you can substantially improve how long a patient has disease control. That's called progression-free survival. And we'll find out just how much progression-free survival exists with these new drugs after the break. I'm Dr. Paul Christo, and you're listening to Aches and Gains. Aches and Gains is supported by the Alliance for Benzodiazepine Best Practices, which leads in determining, providing, and supporting evidence-based prescribing and deprescribing of benzodiazepines to significantly reduce their adverse outcomes. An educational grant from Daiichi Sankyo, Boston Scientific, a leader in microelectric implantable technologies, 
used to treat chronic neuropathic pain. Welcome back. We're here with Dr. Sarah Hurwitz, Professor of Medicine at the University of California, Los Angeles. Dr. Hurwitz, talk to us more about these cyclin-dependent kinase 4-6 inhibitors and how they're increasing survival. We have three FDA-approved cyclin-dependent kinase 4-6 inhibitors. We give this in combination with an anti-estrogen therapy, Mm -hmm. and that has led that that time, that progression-free survival that has improved it now to two or three years. So a a big improvement, but again, still not cures, although I do have one patient on the original phase one study of the CDK4-6 inhibitor who's been doing well over 13 years now. Terrific. And has not had her disease come back. So it's not curing most patients, but it has substantially improved outcomes. Well, that's very promising for those women and men who have metastatic breast cancer. Tell us now about the side effects related to these therapies. Anti-estrogen therapy essentially makes a woman super menopausal. (laughs) So people who are listening who've gone through menopause know exactly what that means. Hot flushes and changes in sleep and more difficulty in maintaining one's weight and different distributions of fat in the body and, you know, maybe some hair thinning. It all sounds very lovely, but (laughs) these drugs are actually very, very effective and have improved survival, so they're an important component to therapy. Um, That's why when I put a woman on these drugs, and these drugs are used for all stages of breast cancer that are hormone receptor positive, Mm -hmm. um, we talk about lifestyle modifications, increasing exercise, and, you know, good sleep hygiene and different things to try and address and mitigate um, some of these side effects, um, including acupuncture and and less Western-type medical approaches. And more specifically, Talk to us about the aromatase inhibitors, because those can lead to osteoporosis. Absolutely, yes, because aromatase inhibitors lower the level of estrogen in the blood to super postmenopausal levels, and mm-hmm. less estrogen means greater bone loss, accelerated bone loss. So all women beginning around age 30 are losing bone mass. This accelerates that process. Okay. We do have medications that's, that reverse that and, and can strengthen the bones called bisphosphonates or rank ligand inhibitors. Those are being used more and more commonly now in breast cancer because not only do they counteract that bone loss, but they also um, improve, uh, they actually have anti-cancer benefits as well. Well, I don't think I knew that. But either way, they slow down or prevent bone loss. Dr. Hurwitz, what about pain? Do any of the treatments that you've discussed lead to pain? Yes. (laughs) So aromatase inhibitors can cause sort of like an achy, stiff feeling in the joints. More than half of my patients experience this when they're on one of these drugs. Mm -hmm. And it's characterized by a stiffness after being in one position for a period of time. So, for example, when getting out of bed in the morning or getting up from a chair after sitting for a long time, I've had 40-year-old women say it feels like I'm 80 years old when I start moving, but then as I move more and more, it gets better. Mm -hmm. Some women, this um, goes away with increased exercise, which has been shown to actually reduce this side effect. But for some women, this is quite debilitating, and we have to go to a different class of medications. I can imagine. 
Let's now talk about the taxanes. These are drugs called Taxol, Taxotere, for example, which are used in breast cancer and can cause something called peripheral neuropathy. Yes, um, one known side effect of taxanes and drugs that target a component in the tumor cell known as microtubules mm-hmm. um, is neuropathy. Neuropathy is a numbness or tingling that is usually starting in the fingers and toes, and it can actually go up and affect more like the hands and the feet as a whole. It can lead to some weakness as well, and it's dose-related. So patients should be advised and clinicians need to watch for and ask patients about if they're having any numbness or tingling at each visit. Um, We don't typically give taxanes for a prolonged period of time. In early stage non-metastatic disease, we don't use it for more than six cycles or six rounds. Mm -hmm. But in somebody with metastatic disease who may be on it for a longer period of time, this will likely develop over time. And so we can do things like holding therapy or reducing the dose or switching to a different type of therapy. Great information. Thanks so much for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. We've got to go. Please join us for part two, when Dr. Hurwitz talks about HER2-positive therapies and triple-negative therapies. I'm Dr. Paul Christo, and you're listening to Aches and Gains. The views and opinions expressed in this radio program are solely the views of Dr. Paul Christo and do not necessarily express the views of this radio station and Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, nor an endorsement by any or all of them of any of its content. This show provides medical information, not advice. Please consult your personal physician before engaging in any course of treatment or use of any of the techniques or products discussed on this show. Discussion of particular uses of products on this show have not been approved by any of the manufacturers of such products. To access podcasts of the show, please go to paulchristomd.com. That's paulchristomd.com. Aches and Gains is produced by Ty Ford. Dr. Paul Christo is the executive producer. Thanks for listening. This is Aches and Gains with Dr. Paul Christo.